Hi, my name is Kunal and welcome to the Geeks of the Valley podcast, which connects with some of the brightest minds globally who are leading their respective industries today to discuss the hottest upcoming industry trends and how their work is affecting the global economy. This morning from Hong Kong, we have a fintech and blockchain entrepreneur, as well as a guest lecturer from Shanghai Tongji University. Please welcome John Patrick Mullen. John, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Kunal. Thanks for having me. And uh, how are things over there in Hong Kong in light of uh, COVID? Yeah, actually, Hong Kong, I think, is one of the, uh, the safer, better places to be at the moment. Um, we've had it fairly under control for a while. Um, we've had a bit of a, uh, an uptick in cases in the past couple of days, but generally speaking, it's, it's still in the low um, single-digit uh, cases per day. So it's, it's you know, definitely much, much uh, better than a lot of the other places in the world. Um, we've been back to work for a while, back to relatively normal life under kind of a, a new normal managing with social distancing and um, you know, other things of, of this nature. But generally pretty good. Um, we've had some, you know, again, uptick in some protests as well. But I think that's par for the course across the globe as well, given the uh, state of the situation in the U.S. and uh, in Europe to a certain extent. No, of course, and I'm happy that that all all is well with you over there in Hong Kong, and uh, things are getting back to normal. Um, oh, for sure. Let's, yeah, let's uh, jump into our first question, shall we? Sounds good. So, tell me about yourself and your background, and how it led to you being a top entrepreneur in Asia Pacific in blockchain and fintech. Yeah, sure. So um, I'll start at the very, very beginning. Uh, I'm an American citizen, grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, and spent a bit of time in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, always had a bit of a uh, international flair or, or, or interest um, from, from when I was a child. Um, and uh, for that reason, uh, ended up doing most of my undergraduates, or actually all of my undergraduate studies. And, and uh secondary education in Europe. Um, so ended up studying in, in, in Madrid um, for my bachelor's degree in international business. Um, so moved, moved out of the US when I was 18, um, which was quite an experience for me, uh, living by myself in a foreign country at you know, a fairly young age. Um, after that, uh, ended up moving to Germany to start my master's. I did a master's in management at European Business School. Uh, right outside of Frankfurt in a city called Wiesbaden, um, which was definitely very different uh, from the experience in Spain uh, for many reasons, cultural reasons, um, uh, just the, like, the attention to detail and the work that was, uh, that was required for the master's as compared to my undergraduate studies. It was um, definitely a, a big growth stage for me, I would say. Um, and part of that uh, master's degree, I had a double degree program where effectively um, I was able to do two masters in two years. So instead of doing two semesters and then a, uh, and then a uh, semester abroad and then your master's degree or then your master's thesis, you did two semesters at your home university and two semesters at a partner university and you would get two degrees. Um, at the time, I'd been very well traveled in Europe. I'd lived, in, I lived there for five years. So I was very keen and interested in um, checking out something different. It was almost like that Europe had become uh, a bit too, I don't want to say stale, but uh, normal for me. Um, it wasn't as challenging as, 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 as it had been in the past. Um, obviously, it's a lot more culturally similar um, to the U.S. than, for example, Asia. 
Um, I had never traveled to Asia before, but I'd always been very fascinated with Asian culture, Asian food, um, Asian history. Um, so it just made sense that when I saw the opportunity to, um, to you know, go to, um, to school in Shanghai um, for a double degree, I, I jumped on that really quick. I, I saw that, um, I basically saw that, uh, that China was booming at the time. I didn't really know what that meant. Um, you know, but you see all these tall skyscrapers and you know, all the lights and everything. And it really, um, you know, kind of hammered it home for me that this was a potentially a big opportunity. Um, but again, I didn't really know what that meant uh, in practice. Um, so got on a plane, um, moved over to Shanghai uh, um, in, I think, 20, 2015, something like that. Um, and yeah, haven't turned back since. So did my uh, second master's at Shanghai Tongji Dashui, Shanghai Tongji University um, in economics. And upon graduation or completion of that degree, um, ended up, well, first off, I just really enjoyed my time there. I, I like my life. I like the, the, the fast pace, um, the massiveness of the city, the kind of, uh, different, you know, I guess, cultural elements that you, that you, that you come across every day, you know, it's totally just different than you know, my upbringing, obviously. So I was fascinated by what, by what was going on there. And, um, at the time I was very interested in working in financial services, I guess, following in some of the footsteps of my father, who is, um, like has worked in, in financial services and wealth management for his entire career outside of his time in the military. Um, so anyway, uh, kind of was going to, to try to make myself a career in, in, in financial services, traditional financial services um, in Asia. Uh, this was obviously not an easy task. Uh, when I moved to Shanghai, didn't speak a lick of Chinese, of Mandarin. Um, I learned a little bit, but definitely not enough in my short time there to uh, you know, be business, uh, I guess, fluent, <laughs> far from it. Um, and I was applying to, you know, every different bank and financial institution under the sun that, uh, that, that had a role that seemed to be interesting for me for kind of an entry level position, global banks, local banks, um, local M and A boutiques. I mean, everything. Um, and, uh, time after time was, was effectively denied <laughs> or, uh, you know, turned down for various reasons. Um, and uh, I even had a job like offer basically rescinded, unfortunately, because they uh, it was at an M&A boutique, but it got rescinded because they had some like deal fall through and they just couldn't do it. So that was one that was kind of crushing for me at the time. But, you know, you live and you learn. And uh, I guess the next thing that really was the game changer for me was I came across a, um, a um, job posting in a WeChat group. Um, for a company called Guotai Junan Securities, um, which I had no idea what that meant, but I but in the job posting it says, uh, you know, top tier Chinese investment bank looking for foreign interns. I was like, oh wow, this sounds pretty interesting. Um, and somewhat coincidentally, <laughs> the only reason I even found out the the job posting or I even like paid any attention to it um, was because there was people arguing with the poster about how little the pay was. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's something I distinctly remember. Um, but I was interested. I followed up and, uh, you know, kind of looked into the company and it ended up being one of China's literally largest state owned investment banks. 
Um, so I did my research, followed up with the interview, was fortunate to get hired. I was the first foreign intern they've ever hired. Um, and, you know, from there kind of started, you know, figuring out what it's like working and living in, in Asia. Um, that was quite a, quite a unique experience, I would say. Uh, they had zero clue what to do with me and the other interns at the time. I mean, quite literally zero. Um, you know, in the beginning, we were just helping the like front office staffs learn how to present themselves better, learn how to you know understand Western culture, learn how to you know pitch and do presentations and dress and I mean literally everything. I think um, when I showed up in a suit and tie. Um, as an intern, whereas the rest of the office, I mean, they would wear like a shirt and slacks, but <laughs> I was, you know, fully dressed up every day. And literally my boss, the big boss started, you know, after I showed up, started ended up wearing a, uh, a tie to work every day, um, which is kind of funny. Um, but anyway, I didn't want to just do kind of, um, you know, training for the, for the office, for the front office staff. We also started to um, effectively start doing kind of like a recap um, and, and, I guess, presentation series about what the Chinese capital market structures from regulation to, you know, um, the milestones that it achieved to, you know, just the development of how the Chinese capital markets have developed over, you know, since its inception. Um, and then once we completed that, which was just like a series of presentations that we would give um, to the C-suite um, that we were going to then present uh, externally to kind of um, international peers who didn't really understand what was happening in China. Um, we came up, well, I guess we didn't come up with the idea, but actually the CEO at the time, uh, I think he still is the CEO or the chairman, um, was looking to create a kind of a tech focused or emerging tech fund. Um, this is based off of, you know, how China has these five year uh, plans which essentially lay out, you know, different elements of the economy that they, that they want to put an emphasis on. And at that time, one of the emphasis was uh, emerging technologies such as blockchain, such as uh, AI, such as um, smart, I mean, smart cities, like all these different themes and trends. So they wanted us to start looking at these things very in depth. Um, and we were, you know, to a certain extent, right place, right time. Um, I was always interested in tech, always interested in, um, you know, just general financial services. So it was a really nice crossover for me um, and really kind of got to uh, get my like experience up and really kind of immerse myself um, and understand, you know, the ins and outs of, 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 of everything fintech, um, you know, as it was becoming what it is today. I mean, obviously fintech's a massive buzzword, um, but at the time it was still pretty, you know, what is that? What's fintech kind of thing? Um, so it was really kind of about positioning myself properly. At the, at the same time, personally, I was doing a lot of stuff um, outside of work. Uh, in the crypto space, you know, was a fairly early Bitcoin investor. Um, shout out to my friend, Trey Tomlinson, who told me about it in college. Um, unfortunately, did not buy nearly enough at the time. <laughs> I was a poor college student and didn't really understand what I was even getting myself into, to be honest. But anyway, um, because of that, you know, I had some general idea about what it was all about. and. Um, was then getting more in depth to it as I, you know, was starting to look at this more within my day-to-day -day work for the bank, you know, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, all these different things. This was, you know, 2016 time. Um, so, you know, Ethereum was just, just starting to become what it was. ICOs were starting to become a massive, um, well, I guess they were still a little bit early, but starting to become more of a thing. 
and I was doing kind of offline fintech meetups um, in China. I think I was probably like the first English language host of these things. Then it became like a big, big, big thing, you know, two, three years down the line. But I, I think I was one of the first people to do these fintech focused um, meetups where we'd bring in fintech entrepreneurs to come talk about what they what they had done in their lives and you know what their experiences were and whatnot. So that was a pretty cool um, experience for me as well. Um, you know, long story short, I had a really good experience in Shanghai, kind of started building myself professionally and um, I guess to a certain extent building my professional brand or, or image or representation, whatever you want to say. Um, and got the opportunity to uh, take part in a, in a um, FinTech project um, so I quit my job at the bank and originally was going to start my own uh, company with my friend, Will, uh, who's been working with me ever since we were originally going to start our own business, but ended up joining one of the companies that we were advising to set up their Hong Kong office. So ended up moving down to Hong Kong, um, setting up that business, uh, from scratch, went from two to 20 plus people, you know, in about the span of a year, had a bit of a meltdown. Um, <laughs> so you live and you learn, you know, that was my first. I guess, truly entrepreneurial experience, really had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, but, you know, again, you live and you learn. Um, you know, fast forward to that. Um, then, you know, had a bit of a spinoff with some of my business partners, um, set up a, a brokerage business that's still functioning, um, doing tokenized offerings within the U.S. Um, called Tractorian Capital. And... Um, Additionally, now I'm working with a project called uh, Rio DeFi, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, so, you know, have a lot of a lot of things going on at the moment. Um, you know, very very heavily involved in the crypto and blockchain space, uh, particularly in Asia. It's fairly exciting out here. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about my kind of let's say five year journey over the past couple of years. Uh, wow, John, uh, what an experience! You know, sometimes. I'd like to say that I was the right person in the right place at the right time for that particular situation. Um, and of course, you know, I had the people around me that also helped support me within that journey. So you know, obviously big shout out to my boss at the time, boss Ding, uh, big shout out to the other kind of part of the other second part of the, uh, I guess the foreign duo at Guotai, his name's Roald Munoz. He's still there. Um, really good guy as well. Um, and then I think the other person that I need to give a bit of a shout out to, um, is the man, the myth, the legend, Eric Sim, um, who has been you know, my mentor since my time at Guotai and still a very, very big part of my life. So I think you know about Eric, um, obviously. Um, and for those who don't, he's a um, banker, but also teaches young people career skills um, through his company, the Institute of Life. He's got nearly 3 million followers on LinkedIn and is definitely one of the OG LinkedIn influencers to a certain degree. Uh, so now, uh, teetering over, you, you talked about these blockchain projects you were involved in and mm -hmm. such, right? And you've spent quite a bit of time in Hong Kong now. Uh, what is so yep. unique about, you know, blockchain as a solution or blockchain as a service? And mm -hmm. what are some of the major applications you have seen until date, you know, he, here in Asia Pacific? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that um, I guess has brought me to blockchain um, without like being so, you know, everything needs to be put on a blockchain. It's going to be so much better than, you know, using a, maybe a centralized system. Um, I think that it just has applications literally in everything. Um, you know, back in 2016, 2017, when even 2018, when there was a massive, a massive hype around all these different blockchain applications, um, 
you know, there was, there was just generally not, uh, the tech wasn't ready yet to, you know, support all of these different applications that people were making these big promises about. And, you know, obviously you had that kind of boom and bust cycle that occurred with all these ICO projects, raising tons of money, burning through money, um, you know, just not a, uh, not a good situation necessarily. And, um, you know, now fast forward to today and you've seen the people who are not just in it for the money. I mean, of course there's still some people in it for the money, but you're actually seeing people who build like very interesting solutions. You're seeing people building out, you know, very complex uh, blockchain solutions, such as the ones that we're building that are interoperable, that are scalable, um, that can create, you know, pretty interesting and unique financial products. And I, again, I'm coming from a financial, um, financial background. So a lot of my, a lot of my work, um, it's coming from, um, you know, effectively, move, effectively moving from uh, the traditional world into a more decentralized financial world. Um, so, you know, again, going into the company I'm working with now, Rio DeFi, you know, we're creating DeFi or decentralized finance products. So this is like decentralized savings and lending without having to go to a bank where they're paying you, you know, practically nothing if not any if, if not negative interest rates on some of this stuff you know there's negative interest rates all over the place now um whereas if you you know work through a more decentralized fashion you can you can you know effectively increase your interest increase your yield potential um and do it without having to you know give your capital or trust you know someone like a bank for example um that being said you know there's definitely applications in all different you know literally every different element. I mean, from non-fungible token NFTs within, you know, games within the art space to, you know, logistic applications, which don't necessarily need tokens, obviously. Um, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's literally everywhere. And I think the thing that's going to be the tipping point is when, you know, people don't have to care that it's built on a blockchain anymore because it, it doesn't really matter, right? It should be about the efficiencies that it creates and the added value that it creates. And if it doesn't create or make it more efficient, then why use it? Um, so, you know, I think when, you know, you have blockchains in the, in the background of everything and you just don't even know, you know, that your game has, you know, blockchain-based non-fungible token elements that you're playing and it just works like that. I mean, that's, that's going to be where it's really, really, um, really, really cool, for example. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think blockchain is, is interesting for me because again, it, it touches every industry. And as a curious person myself, you know, being able to work with projects that are, you know, creating traditional financial products on a blockchain, being able to work with projects that are, you know, creating, you know, um, you know, non-fungible tokens within games and dApps. I mean, that, that's cool. I can, I can work with all different types of industries, all different things. And it's always a, a every, every day of the job is like a new, uh, a new challenge, a new thing to learn. So that's why I like it. Uh, so then, John, in regards to, you know, in light of COVID, how is the blockchain mm. and fintech space looking? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, I think it does depend a tad bit on, you know, where your, where your base is from you know, to a certain degree. I think generally speaking, um, you know, having been based in Hong Kong, it's been pretty fortunate for us um, for a number of reasons. Obviously we haven't had this you know, massive lockdown and shutdown like other places uh, around the world have, in including within the region like Singapore, for example. Um, that being said, I think the blockchain space in general tends to be 
and tends to be used to working with um, distributed or decentralized teams. So, you know, I'm, I've always, since I've been in blockchain for the past four years, more or less have been um, working with people all over the world, you know, so people, you know, you know how Zoom had this massive, like everyone's using it this year. Well, we've been using Zoom for years because <laughs> um, you have people who work in the US, you have people who work in Europe, you have people who work in Asia and you're all on the same team. So you know, having these remote work is, is nothing new for us. So I think that that hasn't really been too much of an issue for you know the space. I would say it's been more impactful on businesses that nece- that didn't necessarily have a viable business model. You know, there's definitely going to be some pain and some some shutdowns in that sense. You know, uh, businesses that that you know um, either weren't ever going to be profitable or you know needed to raise funding to to maintain. Um, that's going to be an issue. Uh, you know, we do a lot of work with VCs and. At least in the beginning, across the board, it was we're you know we're not going to fund you unless you're like a brilliant brilliant idea. We're not going to fund you unless you you know have enough of a runway to get past you know another you know six to twelve months on your own kind of thing. We're not going to fund you to stay alive. You know you need to be making some money kind of thing. So if you weren't if you didn't have a viable business model, you know you're probably not going to survive. Um, and if you're looking for funding. Um, obviously that's going to be harder. The bar has been raised. You know, everyone's a little bit tighter on their capital, tighter on the investments that they're making. So, you know, that's been an, uh, an interesting thing, but at the same time, I think there's also been, maybe not necessarily in blockchain, but in general FinTech, there's been opportunities for companies which have been able to emerge because of this new, I guess the new normal that COVID has created kind of thing. Uh, no, and that's totally understandable. I think, especially in the venture capital space, uh, you're seeing a lot of VC funds, uh, uh, VC money kind of drying up or, or being put on pause just because of, uh, you know, uh, the, the light of the situation, right? Uh, exactly. I mean, there's been, there's, I mean, obviously investments are still being made. I think for smart investors, you know, it's a great, um, a great opportunity to, you know, potentially get, get, you know, valuable assets at a cheaper price. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, I mean, valuations have definitely been squeezed given this situation. Um, it's definitely a buyer's market if you if you're you know a VC, but again you know, not all your LPs are going to be wanting to uh, to necessarily uh, have capital calls when you know they're worried about what's happening within their portfolio. They're, you know they're more maybe the traditional portfolio because of what we you know what's going on in um, across the globe and from a more macro perspective. I think that's kind of started to uh, change a little bit in the past month or so as you know things have seemingly gotten a bit more under control, at least over in Asia. Um, but yeah, it's still tough. Uh, of course. And, um, you know, jumping into this aspect of, you know, we discussed blockchain and, you know, the FinTech space in Asia Pacific at a very high level. Now jumping into mm-hmm. a specific project for yours, uh, Rio DeFi specifically, uh, what is so unique about this blockchain solution and what is this company about? Yeah. So Rio DeFi, um, quite an interesting company. Uh, I give a high level. So Rio DeFi is obviously, as I mentioned, decentralized finance company. Um, you know, focused on creating decentralized financial services for people. And I guess the mission is to really be the bridge between traditional finance and um, decentralized financial applications. So uh, within that, Rio has—I'll just refer to it as Rio because it's easy. Rio has created a suite of products or is, or is creating a suite of products, including its own proprietary blockchain called Rio Chain, a wallet, 
going to have a savings and lending piece. It's going to have an exchange. It's going to have all these different things. Um, stable coins going to have custody. It's going to have a, it's, it's quite a, a broad ecosystem as well as these different dApps, um, all built upon Rio chain and Rio chain is, um, built upon a technology or protocol called substrate, uh, created by parity, parity technologies. Um, so for those who are interested in blockchain applications or, um, kind of the next gen blockchains, uh, parity and substrate are, you know, creating some pretty interesting interoperable protocols. Um, again, so for those interested in like truly in blockchain, um, it, you probably have heard of, uh, the, the blockchain, uh, called Polkadot. Um, so Polkadot is created also, um, from parity, um, and from, uh, uh, I'm built on substrate. So our chain is similar. It's interoperable. It's meant to be scalable. It's meant to have high levels of security um, because of the governance system that they use. Um, currently, our chain is a POA or federated chain proof of authority. So we're, we're not actually that decentralized at the moment, but our plan as we go along is to uh, grow decentralization within our, within our chain, within our ecosystem. We're not that old of a company. So that's you know obviously something that's going to take some time. Um, but eventually we'll move to something which is called uh, NPOS or proof of stake is what is what it's generally called. Um, but in, in, in Polkadot language, they call it NPOS or nominated proof of stake, um, which you know, we can get into a little bit later if, if need be. But effectively, um, Rio is creating a, you know, a suite of, of financial products which are meant to make it easy for individuals to access crypto assets through financial services that seem like, you know, they're your run of the mill applications from a bank or, or from, you know, some sort of financial institution, which are still accessible. They're still easy to use. Um, and they're still secure. So we work together with financial institutions to ensure that, um, you know, we are, you know, licensed where we need to be. We are not licensed where we you know, don't need to be necessarily. Um, so, you, you know, we'll have a, a suite of, of products which fit every, everyone. You know, if you want a licensed product, we have that. If you want something a little bit more crypto, we have that. If you want something in the middle, we'll have that. Um, so it really covers everything. Very interesting. So uh, you're truly serving all aspects of the market here. Yeah, essentially trying to. And, you know, we have a ton of, um, a ton of, uh, of different products that we're trying to create. So, you know, that's also fun and challenging at the same time. Interesting. And can you maybe expand a bit on this aspect of uh, why is it that you chose to go with um, parity? Um, well, I think the, there's a, you know there's only there's only several different types of um, uh, what's it called? Um, I guess interoperable protocols out there at the moment. You know, there's um, there's Cosmos and Tendermint. There's Polkadot and, and Substrate. Um, you know, a couple others, but we felt that parity and, and substrate was the way to go because of the robustness of the technology, the ease of use for, you know, creating different unique blockchains on the system, as well as the interoperability element is, is quite unique. And, um, you know, the ecosystem behind it is very, very strong. So the, the founder of parity and of, of substrate and of Polkadot is this guy named uh, Dr. Gavin Wood, who's also one of the co-founders of, of Ethereum. Um, so this dude's just an absolute genius, I would say. Um, been an OG crypto uh, guy for a long time, and um, you know, just he just has a, a 
I think a brilliant way of, of creating, you know, a governance system that's secure, that's interoperable and, um, you know, supports a very strong community behind it. So for us, it just made sense. And I think the thing is, when you're talking about DeFi products, you need something that's very, very interoperable. You need something that's scalable. So, and secure, you know, we need to have enterprise grade security on a lot of our different applications. So the way that it's set up, you kind of have um, two different main chains within the, I guess, parity or substrate ecosystem. You have Polkadot, which is the, it's actually just the mainnet just launched last last week. The, the DOT token is still yet to be launched live. We're still pretty early in that. Um, but they do have kind of like a scaled down version, which is called Kusama, um, which is more meant to be like a test testing ground without the enterprise grade security, but still a lot of the similar um, interoperable, scalable elements of the Polkadot chain. So um, that's kind of how that ecosystem is structured. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty fun to be able to work with those guys. They're good guys and uh, you know, very, um, um, very knowledgeable and, uh, you know, just a pleasure to work with. Sure. Um, it's really interesting. Some of the names that they, that they give their products. Oh yeah, for sure. And actually I think the, uh, the best part for me was, um, I, I, I tend to enjoy, um, you know, modern art and, uh, Yayoi Kusama, uh, is a Japanese artist who is known for her polka dots, um, and or her dots in her artwork. So it's kind of funny that they took that name, um, Kusama and took it from the polka dot. And then, you know, that, that reference and illusion there is pretty cool. And at the same time, Kusama is meant to be, um, like they, they, the, the logo is a, um, it's basically a canary, uh, like a canary in a coal mine. So it's like meant to be a warning or meant to be like a, like they say, I think they say something like, um, be prepared for the chaos or something like that. Cause you, you're meant to like mess around on it and break stuff. And, you know, it's not meant to be like the same as polka dot, which is meant to be this fully fleshed out system. Um, and you know, it's meant to be chaotic. It's meant to be crazy. And, uh, yeah, Yuki Sama, the Japanese artist known for dots, um, also kind of went crazy a little bit and checked herself into a mental institution. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how long back, but a while back. So, you know, the, the references there are pretty cool. No, hundred percent. That, that's so interesting. Only a true genius would think of, uh, you know, something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so quickly switching topics to, um, the projects that you're on. So you mentored quite a few projects. Do you mind expanding on some of these projects, what you do, what you're a mentor for, what people consult you for? Um, what is it like? Yeah, sure. So I tend to be a mentor for like, uh, incubators or accelerators. Um, so currently work with long hash, um, with, uh, entrepreneur first, um, and a couple others. And generally what you kind of do is you help their cohorts of, 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 you know, Excel, Excel, like startups, which are looking for feedback on, you know, any number of things from their presentations to their business model to, you know, help to raise funding. Um, you know, since we, I've been involved in a lot of that stuff for a while, um, you know, I'm able to kind of plug in, give them some feedback, help them with their pitch, help them with their presentation, and then potentially introduce them to some investors. Um, so, you know, it's a pretty, pretty fairly easy process. You know, it's not a super big time commitment. I'm not paid for it, obviously. Um, some of the value, like value added things that I'm able to do with that is, you know, if I do like a company, I'm able to invest in it personally, um, kind of at a discounted rate on the seed round. So um, I haven't done that to date yet, to be completely honest, I'm investing in my own companies at the moment. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a, it, it is a cool process. I, I've always enjoyed kind of, you know, 
know, hearing about these interesting projects and being involved in the tech space and, um, you know, to a certain degree, giving back a little bit. So, I, you know, it's just a side thing that I kind of like. That's, uh, that's very, very interesting, John. And I think this kind of pushes us into the last question of the call. Mm -hmm. um, what piece of advice would you give to our listeners out there from the journey you've had thus far in life? Oof, uh, that's a big question. Um, so in terms of what I'd say for the, my journey is, you know, sometimes you just got to go for it. You know, I think a lot of the things that I have done in my life, I had no idea what was actually ahead. You know, whether it was like, what's it going to be like moving to China? I had no clue. Obviously, I never even stepped foot in Asia before I moved there. Um, what's it going to be like working, you know, for a Chinese company? No clue. Um, even what's it going to be like moving to, you know, Spain back in the day? Um, it was always just, I just kind of follow my own path, I think. They did it a little bit different. Um, you know, didn't know what I was doing when I got into the uh, blockchain startup when I moved down to Hong Kong. And my first kind of true entrepreneurial experience, zero clue. Ended up blowing up in my face to a certain degree, but, you know, <laughs> you live and you learn. Um, as I think I've said a couple of times on this call and, uh, you know, you come out stronger from your failures than I think you do from your successes. Um, so yeah, sometimes you just got to go for it and, you know, follow your own path, be true to yourself and always, you know, find things that you are truly passionate about doing. I mean, I love my, my job and I love the people that I work with and I love the things that I do. Um, because every day is challenging. Every day is unique. I get to take responsibility for things. I get to build stuff. And I get to, you know, interact and meet with a lot of different interesting people. So, you know, if I can give any piece of advice, it would just be, you know, follow what you truly like. You know, maybe it's not, it's not about the money in the beginning, for sure. You know, when I was working at the bank, um, I think I was getting paid less than my friends who were English teachers um, in Shanghai, which, you know, oh, you're working in investment banking and you get paid less than a, and like a you know kid out of college who has no reason to be teaching English because you know all they all are is some guy from America who's never taught an English class in his life, but he's making double what you make. Whereas I have two master's degrees and I'm working in an investment bank, you know. So uh, that was just like what the heck. Um, but it's definitely not about the money, you know. That'll come and it'll go. Um, but uh, you know, just keep keep pushing on, keep uh, you know, doing things that you like, and I think eventually, you know, you'll you'll uh, find something that works for you on all fronts very true right i can't agree more more with that right money comes and goes but knowledge you know sticks around forever 100 so john if people are interested in contacting you or getting in touch with you what would be the best point of contact yeah sure so i think linkedin is probably my favorite uh social media um and definitely uh, my most developed one as well. So uh, hit me up on LinkedIn, John Patrick Mullen. Um, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you know, make sure to mention that as well. Um, I'm pretty responsive on that for the most part, although I get a lot of messages there. Um, but yeah, uh, LinkedIn's definitely the way to go. I didn't really talk too much about my LinkedIn experience, but that maybe that's for another topic, another time. John, it was a pleasure having you on Geeks in the Valley and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Kanal. Have a good one. Thank you.